Wow, hello everyone. I've seen, I see some familiar faces, some new faces. I'm so amazed to be here. Do you know that you, I was here at the beginning of the year in January and now at the end of the year. So my trip in England kind of bookends this amazing year for me. And my trip in January was really just a big kiss from the Lord to me, just to say, I see you. Oh. Okay. <laughs> and I feel like uh, it's the same. The Lord has brought me back to remind me of some things that he said when I was here before. Um, I have kind of a long prophetic history in England, having come to uni here several years ago. And so... I'm excited about what the Lord is talking to me about. I was sharing with my husband yesterday that it really feels like the Lord brought me here to talk to me. And um, all of my sharing will just be the overflow of what he's talking to me about. I don't, I don't really have a preconceived uh, bit of messages that I'll be sharing. I'm here for, gosh, 17 days in the UK. Whew. And, um, but trying to respond to everyone's needs. But so let me introduce Stephanie Richardson. She's a third-year student at BSSM. Um, I'm super honored to have her. She's brilliant, astute. She's a powerful intercessor. Um, I first met her when she was a first-year student, and she attended. I, I teach coaching at, at Bethel, and I'm um, a, an instructor in second year at the Bethel School of Ministry where I teach coaching. And so she kind of came upon an intro, or a, um, an intro to coaching through one of our workshops. And um, we've been friends since, but she has a very similar story to mine. And um, such a powerful call on your life. Would you share a minute about what you've experienced at Bethel? Can you take a few minutes and just share? Sure. Is it okay if I share a little, just share what's on my heart? Is that okay? Okay. Hello, everybody. Hi. As Elizabeth mentioned, this is on the spot. Um, but I actually, um, we sang a song in worship. It's your breath in, in our lungs, right? And that's like a special song for me and the Lord. Um, it's always uh, a signal to dance. So if I'm ever in a situation where I feel like, oh, is it okay for you to move? Like that song will come on and I'm like, okay, it's like a code word, you know? I'm like, okay, I'll do it. So I actually, and that's something that I have learned to be free in in my time at Bethel, that the Lord speaks to me differently than I thought. So it might be through a song, it might through, be through like an unction to move, um, and so learning to listen to that has been part of my journey. Um, so I was standing over there, I found a, there was a spot and there was another woman flagging. <laughs> Hi. Um, but as I was, I had a white flag and I really felt like the wind of the Holy Spirit, and as I was dancing, I felt like... Um, almost like wind and sails, so of traveling, and that I don't think it was an accident that it was by the door. So I really feel like God is calling people here who may be sort of wayward, um, and that he's just filling this place with his spirit, um, and sort of making room for those people who may be on the fringe, uh, who may not have found a home in the past. Um, and so I just want to bless that, in you, and I think it's probably not an accident that I think a lot of um, what Elizabeth brings is how do we create a safe space for people to encounter God when they look really messy. Um, and I feel like you, you all have an anointing to be a place where people can be messy and encounter the gospel. So I'm just so grateful to be here with you, and um, I bless the anointing that's on this house. So thank you for, for having us. Yeah. Wow, isn't it amazing that I get to have her in my life? <laughs> uh. What to do? I have prepared kind of a traditional preach. Not so much of my testimony, but now I feel... I feel like an open door has been made for me to share a little bit of my story, a little more than I thought that I would. Um, 
so exciting things have happened in this year for me. Um, uh, close to two and a half years ago um, at Bethel, I started meeting with two friends, Ken Williams and Roger Gaskin. And I'm going to move this over here. I feel like I'm off center and that's throwing me off. Um, and we were, we all have similar experiences coming out of homosexuality. Um, Ken and Roger grew up in evangelical settings. Roger was part of the Vineyard Movement and sat under John Wimber. And um, Ken is from, he was part of Kenneth Copeland's ministries in, the, in Texas and Kenneth Hagin. And so we just got together and had a good time talking about how the Lord encountered us and, and brought us freedom. And we were just being friends. And about six months into uh, meeting together, and we met every week for fellowship, we thought, wow, we have something here that people need to know, people need to hear, and I think we have revelation we need to share. And so I began preparing kind of a theological statement because um, that's, that's my background. I like to write, and I like theology, and I, I like doctrine and thinking about scripture, so I began putting together a, a thesis, a statement that we could give to the senior leadership team. And as I got that finished, we were given an, uh, an invitation to share our testimonies at the ministry school. And we ended up, um, before I could ever give that mission statement, really, to the senior leadership team, we ended up speaking to all 2,000-something students sharing our story. Now, if, if you can think about what it would be like to talk about your sex life openly uh, with 2,000 people, it was an exercise in the greatest level of authenticity and vulnerability. So I came out, you know, if you have, if you can imagine, if you have any kind of sexual brokenness in your life and you step up as a leader and you say, well, there's this mess that the Lord dealt with in my life, there's a lot of opportunity for trust to be broken and, and for you to be ushered to the back door. Oh, we won't let her do that. And so there was a risk. There was so much risk in just talking publicly about homosexuality in my life. But it's been met, so now this is two years on, um, met with so many dynamic opportunities, and each time the Lord just squeezes me a little bit more and gives me more and more understanding about what we're dealing with in the church. And, and so Ken, Roger, and I, we formed a ministry called Equip to Love. Um, and I have just a few flyers here if anyone wants to take away. We're equiptolove.com. And our aim is to first to help people who experience sexual brokenness. That I would say that's our first priority because you would be stunned by how many people are in our midst, in church, right now, who struggle in their sexuality, who struggle with not just their identity, but their how they express themselves sexually, and maybe have spent an entire lifetime struggling with that issue and never had the liberty to share. The church has so dynamically failed people in places of deep, deep need for vulnerability issues. And so our first aim is to make a safe place for people who have experienced same-sex attraction, different levels of gender identity issues, to be authentic, to come forward and say, yeah, this is me, and not be, um, not be ostracized, not be ushered the back door, um, not to be labeled, especially not to be labeled but then also that they would find a group of people who would say, we want you, you belong with us, and we will walk with you through the journey because there's freedom available for you. But freedom is not paramount to salvation. God meets us where we are. God meets us before we're perfected, right? And, and so... Honestly, what I see is that the topic of homosexuality and the way the church is grappling with it, 
we're struggling to understand what it is and how do we respond to it. And there's been this huge, uh, seemingly overwhelming tidal wave of oppression, spiritual oppression against the church just on this topic. And it's caused so much confusion. Um, I believe that we have an amazing opportunity. One, to regain our understanding of what the gospel is. And two, to learn how to love well. To learn the love of Christ, which is self-sacrificial love. Love over the long haul, persevering love. Love where you have no agenda, but where you seek the Lord's will for another person. And you're willing to dig deep to see that other person when they can't see themselves. I think that within the gay community, which I honestly, I have not started doing ministry in the gay community. Um, I have no doubt that I will eventually be doing ministry in the gay community. I have no doubt about that. But that's not where I'm at right now. Right now, I'm helping people who already know the Lord, who don't accept homosexuality or that identity, that label of I'm gay. They don't accept that in their lives, and they want more. They want freedom. They want liberty. They want wholeness, really, because it's all about wholeness in the Lord. Um, and learning how to teach the church to walk with these ones because until we can minister to the ones in our midst, the ones that are same-minded as we are, until we can minister effectively to them, we won't be able to minister to the gay community. But if we learn how to walk with someone with a struggle here who wants to walk on the journey, we'll know how to help someone who's coming in for the first time. <laughs> You're going to make me drunk. You're sitting out here. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, let's just pray for a minute. Give me a minute. So thank you, Lord. Jesus, I love you. This is for you. This is for you. So about 20 years ago, I'm 48. About 20 years ago, I was... Um, really struggling to survive. I had, in my early 20s, been diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And um, on the heels of that diagnosis, having been hospitalized for my first full-blown manic episode, um, I came out. Um, I came out, and I had been married for 18 months to a man. And um, I immediately moved out. And I moved into the gay community of Sacramento, California. And so all through my 20s, um, as I was growing increasingly unwell mentally and emotionally, I was growing stronger in my identity as a lesbian. Um, throughout my childhood, so I grew up in the Presbyterian Church, and um, my experience of the Presbyterian Church was highly intellectual. Um, not a lot of crazy, charismatic things were happening in the Presbyterian Church that I grew up in. Now, I've been told that it happens in other churches. But so, I had a very cerebral understanding of God. But a passion for God. Um, a passion to understand theology. When I studied at I studied at Durham, um, I studied historical theology, and um, I really wanted to have a career 
studying theology. But on my first hospitalization, I had to let go entry to start my master's degree. And I didn't think I would ever get an opportunity to, to even start a master's because I began getting sicker and sicker. But so I finally, at age 30, decided I would try to um, try seminary. I would try seminary to see if that could give me a break from the illness. And so I attended seminary openly gay. Um, I started in 2000, and I was one of maybe a dozen students at, s at my seminary that were open. Um, half a dozen of us or so did ministry in Boys Town and the gay community in Chicago. And, um, you know, during that time, I, it was a three-year degree, I became sicker. So whereas I had hoped I, I would go there and start to be healed, ooh, okay, um, I actually got much worse. And so at the end of my third year, right before I was finishing, so at the time in the Presbyterian Church, they were not ordaining gays and lesbians. Uh, they certainly weren't marrying gays and lesbians. Um, but I was actively lobbying in the Presbyterian, um, or in the Chicago Presbytery, trying to move them towards ordaining gays and lesbians. And what we were trying for at that time was that a, a single gay person could be ordained. So chastity and singleness, but still ordainable, was what we were pursuing. Um, midway through my final year, I had such a lengthy hospitalization that I had to drop out. And so I had ample credits to finish a master's degree in theology, but just not an MDiv, and so that's what I did. I accepted what seemed to me at the time a lesser degree because it would never allow me the opportunity to be ordained in the Presbyterian Church. That was probably a gift from the Lord, but it sure didn't feel like it at the time. And so um, I left Chicago. I was living in Chicago. I moved to deep southern Illinois, just close to the Kentucky border, and uh, started doing youth ministry in a Presbyterian church in a small rural area where my parents had grown up. It was an opportunity for me to move in with my elderly grandmother. Um, so I was... I was very active in the middle of the night. I frequently had kind of manic episodes, and so my grandmother and I, who, she was 94, and she suffered with dementia. We had a lot of quality time at 3 and 4 a.m., you know. But I was awake. She was awake. We were happy together. Um, and in that season, I met another youth pastor who said, hey, you know, it would be awesome for you to visit our our." Um, our outreach. He had a storefront outreach with about 50 teenagers in a rural community of 4,000. That was a huge ministry. And they were, so in my Presbyterian church, I had all the well-educated um, members of the community, all the doctors and lawyers, and I had their children in my youth group. He had homeless kids and abused kids and street kids, just, they would just come, you know. And one night I came and the Holy Spirit showed up so powerfully. Um, they had a really anointed worship leader. She had a five-disc CD changer. And she would pray during the day about what songs she would play. And she would put together kind of a CD song list. And she would start playing songs. And at, she was taught, she was 17, but she would observe how the Spirit was moving on different songs, and then she would keep playing in the different songs that she knew to kind of um, inspire connection to the Lord. And so the Holy Spirit fell that night, and several kids started speaking in tongues, and a lot of people were on the ground, and there was weeping, and it was dark, and I was horrified. It was so scary. It was out of the box, off the hook, I had never seen or heard anything like that. Um, I was ashamed of what I was seeing. It was like, how could you think of like worshiping with abandon with your hands up? That's so uncivilized. And and then a 17-year-old boy approached me. 
And he said, you know, I, I think I have a word from the Lord for you. And so now picture this if you can. I, I wish I didn't have enough time or I didn't even think of it to give you a slide of what I looked like. Um, but I didn't wear any women's clothes. I cut my hair with clippers, so I had kind of a number one haircut, number one clippers. Um, I didn't, uh, so, I mean, I looked completely androgynous. Maybe because of my size and my age, I was 33, maybe kind of like a 20-year-old boy is what I looked like. And um, he said, the Lord says to you, I will remove all doubt. Now, that was such an important word to me because six weeks before then, I had gone to a Methodist tent revival meeting. It was um, an old-time gospel revival meeting. And honestly, I mean, all of my Methodist friends were equally as liberal as I was. I had no idea that gospel evangelists could be Methodist. So I went to this, this tent meeting because it was a tradition in the town where my grandmother lived. In fact, it, at Beulah Campground, that tent meeting, I'm pretty sure my grandmother as a child would have gone to that annual tent gathering, that campground. And so that's why I was there. And I was there with my, you know, obsessively scrutinizing dis distaste for anything that was um, overt kind of manifestation of joy. And I, I was so spiritually oppressed. And I remember going to the evangelist one night uh, because I was in so much pain. In that season of my life, I was really actively preparing to die. I had already tried to commit suicide, and my life was so disappointing. So if you can imagine, I went to uni on scholarship in my early 20s. I graduated in the U.S. at the top of my class. I had everything going for me when I was 20. And by the time I was 30, I could barely complete a master's degree. I could barely, I couldn't work. I couldn't work full-time. Um, I hadn't held a full-time job by this time for almost eight years. And so I was really disappointed in my life. And so I remember going to this evangelist and saying, can you prove to me that there's a God? Now, I was doing ministry. <laughs> I was doing ministry, and even... You know, I had preached a message in that pre in the Presbyterian church where I worked, um, promoting, uh, affirming, an affirming doctrine towards homosexuality, inviting homosexuality into the church, and people left the church. And so, this this seventeen year old boy had this direct response from the Lord to that angry outburst six weeks prior. And the impact of that simple prophetic word was to force me to, to question whether God could know who I am. And I thought, I reasoned in my mind that night, I thought, it's possible God knows who I am, but if he does, I have no idea who he is. And so I picked up a Bible, a new Bible, and a highlighter, and I began defacing my Bible, um, something I would never have done previously. But I bought a yellow highlighter, and I highlighted every passage in Scripture where God describes himself. I, didn't, I wasn't searching for anything about me. I was really on a mission just to see who God was, figure out what he's like. And so I remember, you know, I just started in Genesis. And um, I remember getting to Exodus. And the first passage that really dramatically impacted me was in Exodus 33, where Moses is, you know, Moses has seen all these miracles. 
and he's in the wilderness. He's gone up and gotten one set of tablets, and you know the story that Israelites have messed up with the golden calf, and Moses still wants, you know, to return to the Lord. And Moses says to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Moreover, you have said, I have known you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways, that I may know you. So that I may find a favor in your sight. That was me. You have said, I have known you by name. Therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways. It was so profound for me. And so I read a little further. How can I... How can it be known that I've found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not by you going with us so that we may be distinguished from all the other people who are upon the face of the earth? The Lord said to Moses, I will do this thing of which you have spoken. For you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. Then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. Then the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me And you shall stand there on the rock. And it will come about while my glory is passing by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will take my hand away and you shall see my back. But my face shall not be seen. Now the Lord said to Moses, cut out for yourself two stone tablets like the former ones and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets which you shattered. So be ready by morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No man is to come up with you, nor let any man be seen anywhere on the mountain. Even the flocks and the herds may not graze in front of that mountain. So he cut out two stone tablets like the former ones, And Moses rose up early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took two stone tablets in his hand. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. He said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, I pray, let the Lord go along in our midst, even though the people are so obstinate, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as your own possession. Now, previously, Moses had gone to the mountain with a party of others. And you know, Moses... Previously, the Lord had said to Moses, or this is what Moses understood, 
you know what? I'm just going to smite all of the Israels, I'm Israelites. I'm just going to kill them all, and I'll start all over with you, Moses. And Moses intercedes and says, no, you can't do that. Um, think about your name. Think about your name. How will that reflect upon you, Lord, if you do that? Now, I want to propose to you that the experience that we have of the Lord, or really, the Lord is constrained by our own understanding in how he relates to us. And so Moses experienced almost two polar differences. The Lord as the compassionate one versus the Lord as the wrathful one. And Moses experienced that completely alone in the presence of the Lord. Where he could not be influenced by anyone else's opinion or anyone else's expectation or anyone else's presumption that God is a certain way, that God is disappointed, or that God would start again, that he would abandon the Israelites. Moses was alone on the mountain, and I want you to know that the place where we are when we are alone with the Lord is the most authentic and vulnerable place we will ever be. It is the place where we all can just be ourselves. We don't, if you cross the threshold and say, I will be authentic with you, Lord, and I will own, I will own up to all of the disappointment in my life, and I'll stand before you knowing, knowing how messed up I am, and I'll let you look at me in my shame, you will see the Lord truly for who he is because you have been in that place of authenticity before him. The Lord God, compassionate and gracious. I wanted to invite you into how to apprehend an understanding and revelation of that. Can you think of right now some experience of your life or some person in your life um, who has been compassionate towards you or you've observed their compassion? Maybe shut your eyes and just think, let the Holy Spirit bring to your mind what does compassion look like? What does it feel like when you receive compassion? Now, I want you to move that feeling or that understanding and awareness of compassion to the Lord and feel his compassion towards you. He's the compassionate one. Jesus, we receive your compassion. You are the compassionate one. You're the gracious one. Imagine the grace of the Lord. You know, if you go to someone's home and they are a gracious host, You experience this mildness, this tenderness, this kindness, this honor, that graciousness. I believe that Jesus carried everywhere he went. He was gracious to people. He was just gracious. 
and people wanted to be in his presence. In fact, if you look at, if you think about the gifts of the Spirit or the fruit of the Spirit, really, love, joy, peace. Think of the peace of the Lord. Think of Jesus and the peace that he carried. The peace that you have when you sit in his presence. You know, the longer you identify with the aspects of the Lord that we can comprehend. The revelation you receive of that is unlocked in your own life. Revelation renews the mind. And so the Lord took me on this journey of observing all these different aspects of his life (coughs) and seeing them. He let me see him. And that experience over time began to unlock something in me. I began to become aware of his immense beauty, his incredible excellence. And I found that along the way, in his presence, I was getting... Liberty. I was getting freedom in my soul from the oppression of the emotional turmoil I was experiencing. I was experiencing peace. And the Lord was beginning to meet me in a place that no one had ever met me before. You know, in 1998, so I was 28, I spent almost a year unable to talk. I would just sit in a room, and it would be a quiet room, and I would sit there the entire day just ruminating, just all the thoughts cascading. And the Lord could meet me in that place and unravel thoughts and get me out of my reverie. About... Now, okay, I was still pretty fully Presbyterian. I didn't know you could hear from the Lord. I didn't know how you did that. I didn't learn how to do that for a couple more years. I didn't, no one was there to teach me. But I was experiencing an internal shift. I would go to the gay bars So, yes, as a pastor, I would still go to the gay community, to the gay bars, because that's where family is. That's where my community was. I felt known. I felt like I belonged. And in this season, I was becoming passionate about seeing things happen. I wanted to see people falling down. I didn't want to fall down. But I wanted to see someone else falling down. I wanted some kind of external proof, something outside of me proving that there is a God. And so I kind of stopped going to the gay bars. It just seemed I would go that direction and there wasn't that much life for me. I would go to these wacky Pentecostal churches. in In the area where I was of the Bible Belt, there weren't any, not really any charismatic churches. That's very refined. These were holiness Pentecostal churches, you know, wearing a tie, suit and tie every, you know, women long sleeves. And you know what? In that season, I was going to maybe five services a week, as many as I could find. And I showed up with my boys' clothes on, and no one confronted me. No one confronted me. Everyone knew I was a lesbian. My husband met me in this season, and he, (laughs) I remember we were going to watch a movie, Martin Luther, and um, we had just met, 
And I remember turning to Doug and saying, you know, after, I've got to tell you that I'm gay. And after you hear, you're not going to want to, you're not going to want to talk to me. I, the way I phrased it was, you know, I've got to tell you something. And probably after you know, you're not going to want to hang out with me. And Doug, he, I re, he will say, I went into 911 prayer. Because here she was, she was going to tell me that she was gay. As if I couldn't tell. Like the, <laughs> <laughs> the pride sticker on the back of her truck. Or, you know, the fact that she never wore any women's clothes. The, the crew cut, none of those things indicated to me that you were obviously a lesbian. Oh, my gosh. But no one confronted me. People just let me come in and worship. They let me ask questions. I remember going to this little, there was a really large black Pentecostal church for the community, you know, probably 100 people, and um, but a, a diminutive, fiery black pastor. The name of the church was Harvest Deliverance Center. And Doug, Doug, would, Doug served as a guide in this season. He would say, hey, here's an interesting service you could try. Pick that one up. And so I went to meet Only Williams. And um, Only had a, a soup kitchen and a pantry. And so his church was always open. And it was two blocks from my own church. So I would go, to my, go faithfully to my Presbyterian church at 10 o'clock. And um, the service lasted about 45 minutes so I could drink some coffee and say goodbye to everybody. And then at 11, when their service started, I would drive my truck and park at the back. I'd park behind in the alley. And then I would go into their two-hour service. And it was only who showed me that you could, you could touch the Holy Spirit. You could feel the Holy Spirit. He would demonstrate he would say, here, stand up here. Let me lay hands on you. Get a catcher. And I, he, he said, you don't believe that you're going to fall out. But you're going to. And I'm sitting there going, oh, come on, only. He laid hands on me. And then I'm like, what is going on with me? I actually fell down, but very quickly stood up. And I just did that. I went on this journey. And nobody confronted me. People just welcomed my questions because they saw that I was looking for the Lord. And that's all. I was just on a journey with the Lord. And we all need to have opportunity to do that, right? And somehow the gay community has been barred from that experience in many ways because we're so concerned about the rules that we don't know how to confront their, their worldly lifestyle. And we need them to be cl all cleaned up before they come in because what they're bringing is scary and it's dangerous and it's offensive. But God is enough for that. And he can do anything. And so suddenly I realized, well, I've stopped going to the gay bar. What's that? And when I go in that direction, I don't feel the presence of the Lord in the same way as when I'm doing these other things. And so I began to question that. I began to think, what could that, what does that mean? Does it have any meaning? Does it have any bearing? And I, you know, I was questioning, is homosexuality a sin? Because in my faith background, no, it wasn't. It wasn't important that I deal with my sexuality or repent. Um, so I began revisiting those scriptures and trying to understand what they are. And I remember meditating on the Ten Commandments. I remember thinking, um, what, what, what is the law? What is the law? And, you know, the first one, don't take the Lord's name in vain. I began questioning the Lord, what is that? And I realized that 
the Lord in the Ten Commandments was declaring a lifestyle that reflected him and his personality. So that if you took the Ten Commandments, even most of the law, and you flipped it, it made a comment about what God's values are and who he is, the one who doesn't hate, the one who doesn't, who is always faithful. He doesn't commit adultery. He doesn't murder. He honors. He doesn't covet. And I then went back to Moses, and I saw that, you know, at some point Jethro said to Moses, so Mo- here's what Moses was doing in this season. People were coming to him with problems, things that needed uh, judgment. What do we do now? What would be godly in this situation? Okay, imagine there's no law. Nobody really knows the Lord. And so he would take, circumstantially, he would take questions to the Lord. Okay, God, what do we do now? Like He would go to the tent of meeting and ask, this person's doing this. What should our response be? And he began systematizing the responses of the Lord. So Moses was on a journey to understand the ways of the Lord. And he was writing down in the commands what he observed were the ways of the Lord. And the Israelites systematized that because they were unwilling to go directly to the Lord. And so the ways of the Lord... Do you know Jesus is the way? He is the ways of the Lord. So the law, the commands, are a description of God's character. They are a measurement that, are ge- that is given to us so that we can be compatible with God. They are the standard by which humanity is created to flourish so that we can bear the image of God. So that, as it says in Romans 8, we are conformed to the image of Christ. They're not arbitrary in any way. So for me, what value is it for me to repent of homosexuality or try to align my life to this system that seems so somewhat arbitrary and demanding that requires complete self-sacrifice and surrender, what is the virtue of doing that? It is to be conformed to the likeness of Christ, to be able to naturally walk in righteousness, to allow the Holy Spirit to imprint his character on me so that my daily manifestation on earth is the character of God. That journey that I'm still on, of receiving revelation of the character of God has brought me into complete healing. I I don't struggle in any way with bipolar disorder. Um, in, In 2007, I went off the last of all of the meds that I had been taking over years. So I it first began with, I don't need anti anxiety drugs. I don't need sleep medicines. Oh, I don't need this antipsychotic drug. It just went, I had five or six different categories of drugs that I dropped off until eventually I didn't need any of them. And then I got married. And in the context of that marriage, the Lord has done so much work to give me revelation as to why I had same sex attraction. My understanding. I surely had been born with it. The Lord unraveled step by step with each opportunity when I would say, Lord, why why do I have this pull towards that woman? And the Lord would say, it's, it's because you're trying to redeem something of yourself. You see something in her that you wish you had. You're comparing yourself. Or many other things. So that with every trigger, the Lord would unlock something about my own self, my own past, my own identity. Rather than being fearful of my breakdown, fearful of my sin issue, fearful of that lust problem, the Lord pushed me to press in to each time, 
each weakness so that the Lord would give me healing in those places. I know that that's possible for anyone, for everyone, for everyone here, because the Lord is after wholeness in all of our lives. He wants us to be absolutely free of everything that has dominated our lives so that we can purely and pure-heartedly manifest the character of God on earth so that his kingdom will be established. That is where we're all headed. And the, the gospel is enough to do that. People come to me and they say, is homosexuality sin? Is it, is it a sin? Is being gay a sin? Well, Jesus died to set us free from the power of sin. The gospel is enough if we want that freedom to, to get it. Yeah. So before you all fall asleep, I just want to pray over you and ask for the same revelation, more revelation, of what God's character is. Because you know what? When we focus more on the power, really more on the character of God than we focus on ourselves, that is, that is the secret sauce. God's love is always other-focused. And so to the degree that we can irresponsibly look away from our problem and focus on the Lord, he will take care of it. He will take care of it. Yeah, amen. That's a good word. <laughs> so let's just thank the Lord for tonight. Let me bless you. Oh, Jesus, thank you so much for what you've done. Thank you that you, on the cross, allowed us to push into you. Lord, you, you gave yourself, you just surrendered yourself to whatever we wanted almost. And yet, you can't be overcome. Lord, I just ask that you would take this message, this beautiful message of your righteousness, and of your power and and just plant it as a seed here. Let it grow. Let your kingdom come, God. We earnestly desire you. You have everything that we need. And in your kingdom, there is flourishing, there is joy, there is beauty, there is hope, there's prosperity, and we desire it deeply. Lord, give us increasing revelation of your kingdom and let it be manifest in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. I hope you realize how precious